We back and we black. Happy Thursday, kiddos. You're listening <laughs> to The Intersection on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Of course, the show is presented by Progressive Insurance and all guests on the program appear via the Shell Pennzoil Performance Line. My name is Clinton Yates. I'm a columnist at The Undefeated. L. Duncan is, of course, my co-host. You know her from SportsCenter, and we're both on various other television programs. How are you this week, L? I'm doing good, but I also want to go ahead and get that on a T-shirt. We're back and we're black. True. Uh, you know, Still black. I mean, trying. Remain. That's basically how I'm living in these streets. <laughs> you know, you want to hit us up, 1-888-ESPN, 1-888-729-3776. We have a lot to get to on the program today. The guests who are joining us will be Keyshawn Johnson. You are familiar with his work from ESPN Radio as well as NFL Live. And, of course, Mark Spears. ESPN's the undefeated NBA writer who was inside the bubble. They'll be joining us later. But right now, you know it's time for college football. This mm-hmm. week, we saw Pac-12 athletes come out and create a form of unity to make various demands to the commissioners of the conference about things relating to health, things relating to money, and things relating to investment in the black community. L, it's the second time we've seen athletes sort of stand up in a unified way, specifically in the last 10 days or so. We saw what happened when the SEC asked their athletes what were going on. And I'll tell you quickly my thoughts on this overall. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have been wildly impressed, L, with simply the intellectual aplomb with which these kids have presented their case and talked about what it is that matters to them. Oftentimes, when we think about how young folks represent themselves and how people talk about things that are important to the rest of the world, we don't give them enough credit because we either look at them as too inexperienced in life or generally too stupid to know what's going on around them. We have learned in the last fortnight that these kids are not only smart, but they are kind about how they are trying to get their message across. This, to me, has been the most impressive part about this. These kids are all right, Elle. And they're organized. Like, Clinton, they're organized. I think that's what's really what's really special. Uh, for those who are listening that haven't had a chance to read Bomani Jones' article about at least how the Pac-12 sort of unity group came together, you should check it out. It's on The Undefeated right now. Um, but I was so impressed by this one particular quote that I pulled it when I read it a couple days ago with one of the men who sort of doesn't want to call himself the leader of the movement, one of many leaders. They're saying that, you know, there's 400 leaders, if you will, uh, across the conference. But he said that this was, you know, A, really in the making for the last couple of years, just based on some of the advisory councils they had been on. But he had this quote where he said, the only way a labor movement can be started is with a work stoppage. And I thought the idea that they're so opportunistic, right, that they, they fully understood and read the room and understood the leverage that they had in particular because of these unique circumstances and the idea that it took, right, this confluence of all of these things coming together. How many times, Clinton, have we said over the last few months that it was it took a stoppage of all distractions from sports? It took George Floyd dying and it took a pandemic where everyone was at home in order to see this sort of global movement happen in terms of of, of of social inequalities in this country and this reckoning right. that's happening, right? And I think that they fully recognize that when it came to college sports as well because they know and they have known for a long time that they're essentially the straw that stirs this drink, but they've never had the chutzpah, if you will, to steal from a Yiddish term, to say, like, we're not going to play. We see how important this money is to you. If you're considering, you know, having us play through a pandemic, we see how important this bottom line is to you. Therefore, this is what we want. And I just think it, the, the idea that they were 
they were organized enough to start reaching out and to plant these seeds months ago, but in particular over the last month, right? July 4th is really when they started to focus on those three major issues and hone their message. I mean, I think it's remarkable, Clinton. I'm, I'm, I was impressed when they started using some of their clout and cachet in their own campuses to get, you know, anthems right. or chants changed or to get statues changed or to get names taken off buildings. But the idea that they would do it and then influence other conferences is, is incredible. It is absolutely impressive. You're listening to The Intersection on ESPN Radio. Clinton Yates, L. Duncan. Give us a phone call, 1-888-SAY-ESPN, 1-888-729-3776. What do football unity group movements by players from the Big Ten and Pac-12 mean to you for the future of college athletics? It's The Intersection on ESPN Radio. Let's hear what Hunter Reynolds, a DB from Michigan, had to say on how they put this together on Spain and Company this week. I think disappointed is the right word. You know, we've, as student as uh, college athletes, we've been working out for, you know, since January, especially for football. Uh, we were in quarantine, working out, doing home workouts over the summer. And in that time period, there was just no communication. There was no really plan that players could look at and just realize that there was a higher authority putting something in place to really keep us as safe as possible. There wasn't that feeling. And so, you know, the talk amongst players was, you know, if they're not going to look out for us, then we're going to look out for ourselves. And that point specifically to me is fascinating, L, because what has been sort of the most intriguing part about this is that the emotional play has been very effective. On some larger level, there's a large feeling of like, hey, please don't do this to us. You know, like it is for the greater good of everybody if we don't put us all at risk for something that we're putting our lives on the line for. I think that there is something to be said about various officials and other people at high levels of college sports who can just say, you know what, this isn't in my best interest either. And if that's part of how they end up changing minds, that to me is just kind of a wow because I'm feeling that. I'm feeling like more than ever, the average fan of college sports understands the plight that these kids are in. If you're going to force them to be there, you're going to have to understand what they're dealing with and give them their own agency to communicate that. And they've done that and they've shown folks, this isn't right. Please make it right because we'll all suffer if we don't. And that to me is amazing. They're never going to garner more sympathy than, they, than they're going to right now. Because you see, even, even last year when the news came down, right, that California was going to allow these players to be paid, you would see sort of this visceral reaction from people. And, and what's always been the reaction, Clinton, for the detractors of college athletes getting paid? It's, oh, well, it's, it's greed-based. They're getting a free education. I wish right. my kid could get a free education to college. I'm paying college bills still, and my kid graduated eight years ago. Da, 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 da. And now the tide has essentially turned. And what we keep hearing and what we continue to hear is people saying things like, at least the NFL and NBA and MLB players and NHL, at least they have a union. They have someone advocating for them. They're getting paid to do this. These are grown men. I've never heard the term kid thrown out so much when ascribing right. 18 to 21-year-olds as I have when it comes to these amateur athletes. So I think they fully understand. And what I think is even, is even better is, as someone in this industry, Clan, you've certainly had to like negotiate contracts, right? And yes. leverage is a part of negotiating. But also, 
understanding that a great tactic of negotiating and trying to get what you want is for asking for things that are completely unrealistic. Like the Pac-12 players asking for 50% of the conference's revenue or for the endowment fund to protect college sports or for their commissioner to have his salary reduced. Those things are not going to happen. But I think they, they finally understand that if they ask for, if they shoot for the moon and they fall somewhere sort of short of the troposphere, they have still made huge, huge gains when it comes to the power shift and the power dynamic of college sports. And so to me, you know, it's amazing the Pac-12 did it. I had said days ago when we first started talking about this before the Big Ten joined the fray uh, that, you know, if we could get the Pac-12 makes the least amount of money when it comes to football revenue, right? Like if we could get the Big Ten and the SEC involved, we're talking about half a billion dollars of revenue a year. This would really start to be a power dynamic and a true movement. And now we've seen the Big Ten get involved, albeit not as much on the social justice side, but still trying to take ownership of the health aspect. I mean, do you think, Clinton, when you sort of look at the landscape, because I imagine the NCAA is hoping that these, this will just sort of die down and go away. Do you think that we are truly seeing something that years from now will say this was the beginning of this power shift? We'll get to that on the other side. Hey, Coming up, what does football, what do football unity groups mean from players from the Big Ten and the Pac-12? And how satisfied should we be with the NCAA Board of Governors specific requirements for fall sports? It's The Intersection on ESPN Radio. I'm Clint Yates. She's L. Duncan. Stakes are definitely high. You're listening to The Intersection on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app and Sirius XM Channel 80. My name is Clinton Yates. Right beside me is L. Duncan. We're talking about college football here on ESPN Radio on a Thursday, discussing the various movements that student athletes have brought to the forefront as a result of Black Lives Matter movement, as well as the coronavirus affecting the country and as a result, NCAA athletics. We saw the NC2A Board of Governors come out with a list of things that they are going to make available to students. We're going to get to that a little bit later. But you asked me before the break, L, if I thought that this right now was a moment, if mm-hmm. I have that right. Sure. In terms of what we're seeing really kicking things off and really making what we'll just call a tangible difference in a lot of minds. Now, my stance on symbolism versus action is sort of well-known in these streets in terms of I believe in the value of it. But as for college football, here's what I think. The days of, specifically in the Pac-12, some, like, also ran, for lack of a better term, old white guy college football coach just dropping back in on a program and reclaiming his career because people sort of know who he is, those days are over. And here's why. Because going forward... These kinds of programs that are actually listening to their student athletes, it's just not going to be acceptable to bring in the same type of mind that we've always had in the coaching ranks in college football. You can't have anybody getting close to a Dabo situation or anything close to old boy down there in Oklahoma State. You're not even going to be able to get that guy through the door. If you're actually taking people seriously, and that doesn't mean that all of a sudden every coach is going to be some brother with a fist in the air. What it means is that we're going to have to open our paradigms and expand our paradigms on what the kind of person is that we want leading revenue sports teams in outward facing positions at universities. And I think that's going to cut off a lot of these sort of normal also runs that we see in the coaching ranks. And it's going to open things up to sort of a I don't want to say a renaissance, but just a different look at how we do this. 
you know, in terms of who is the so-called leader of men overall. That's what I think is going to happen. The people that come into the pipeline are just going to be different because the student athletes won't accept anything less. That's what I think. Do you feel like that's a bit idealistic, like to, to do that without implementing anything sort of similar to like the Russell rule, which the West Coast Conference implemented, which is sort of an initiative and forces, you know, the Rooney rule, if you will, of college basketball. Like you think that we've just reached this place where where players have so much clout and culture is so important. You look at what happened with Iowa. Like you think that it's it's we've reached that point where we're not going to continue to have the Chan Gailey effect. That's what I call it. Whenever the yeah. same person continues to fall up and they fall up and they fall up at every single level. You you really believe that you're that hopeful that we've gotten to that point. Specifically in the Pac-12 I am. I think okay. it's a harder social climb in the Big Ten and obviously in the SEC. The sure. SEC is a little bit more dicey. But here's what I think. I don't think that that's idealistic. I actually think that's much more practical in terms of what the blowback is that people are going to be dealing with if these kind of situations crop up, not just in the present, but in people's pasts, which is another thing to consider here. 2020 has changed how we express ourselves in terms of what's acceptable, you know? And if the guys who come in potentially have issues like that, I don't think it's something that's some sort of pie in the sky thing. I think it's just the best way to actualize what it is you're trying to do and keep your student athletes happy. On some level, I think that's a large part of this is just placating things with people who are kind on some level beyond just being winners, you know, air quotes. I, you know what? I could see that. I could see that there would be a deeper examination, and I would hope it wouldn't just be relegated to the Pac-12, but I could see that there would be a deeper um, sort of dissection of how these coaches respond to their largely African-American teams or how they sort of their, their track record or history of creating a culture that is inclusive. I could certainly see that coming into the conversation or at least the interview process when it probably wasn't important before. So, sure, because no one at this point wants to be the people who, post George Floyd, you know, movement in America years later still didn't get it right. You know, no one wants to be, um, you know, still of the 2020 pre-George Floyd way, which was sort of this idea that you could just be naive to it and that would be enough. You could apologize, release a statement and say, we'll change the culture and then do nothing. So, yeah, in that regard, I could certainly see that. You're listening to The Intersection on ESPN Radio. Clinton Yates, L. Duncan. Let's switch gears here a little bit, but we're staying in college football. Obviously, COVID-19 is a major issue. This is not just about racial justice or social justice overall or paying players. They're correlated, obviously. However, the specific protocols that these athletes have to go through in order to stay safe have been very difficult. We've seen various teams struggle with this throughout the summer. And overall, there's a question. How much responsibility is on the head coaches to enforce COVID protocol and encourage players to speak up. We've seen the story about what happened out in Colorado State where there were conflicting reports about how much of a priority these kind of safety measures were. Let's hear from Arizona State head coach and our boy, Herm Edwards, on Freddie and Fitzsimmons about how they're trying to protect their people. We don't know the dynamics of that yet. We don't know if the stadium, are they going to be at half full or quarter full? We don't know that. That's in discussion. I don't have to make that decision. Um, the only thing that, 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 that I'm concerned with is that every day we make sure that the safety of every individual in this building, everyone, um, is in a position where, where safety is the number one, uh, number one thing we talk about all the time, and the players as well. And that's all you can do as a coach. Oh, how does that sit with you? Uh, I mean, it was, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was, I love Herm. It was a bit of, it was a bit of deflecting. Um, Listen, on one hand, I say, I mean, it, it, they 
do take a load share of the responsibility, right? Like head coaching is not just about the X's and O's, right? And that's why you have coordinators and position coaches because you're supposed to deal with the macro. And in these times, the macro is making sure that your athletes are prepared and doing the right things to, you know, get on the field, protect themselves and protect their teammates and potentially the teams that they play. On the other hand, I, I do say, Clinton, I mean, these are still grown men. I know, again, I, I laughed at how much we like to call them kids, but they're still grown men. You're still putting them into an environment where we don't know if people, other students are going to be allowed on campus. Uh, no, like I think that you can sort of try to detract your athletes from wanting to go to these like frat parties should they still be happening. But at the end of the day, like when you do something that is not bubble related, you are not putting the onus from responsibility on one person. You're putting it on everyone collectively that they can sort of do the scouts honor and trust system that they'll do the right thing. And I don't know that that falls on the coach. They cannot be with them 24 hours a day. Yeah, that's very true. Let's hear what Kevin Warren, Big Ten commissioner, had to say Wednesday on the Big Ten Network about their protocols. Our high contact sports such as football, the minimum will be twice a week, and those will be PCR uh, tests. The other important component is that all of these tests, once we get into competition, will be managed by a third-party laboratory. We thought it was really important from a consistency and credibility standpoint. I feel comfortable as we sit here today, but it's a fluid situation. There's no guarantee that we will have fall sports or football season, but we're doing everything we possibly can that if we're so blessed to be able to have fall sports, that things are organized and done in a very methodical and professional manner. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to give the Big Ten credit, but here's what I'll say about what they've done so far. By putting a schedule out, and if we are to believe and to trust them that they are not going to revoke scholarships for people opting out, they have at the very least informed student-athletes to the point where they have an option to say no which for me is a far safer process than just going with the old trust us, it'll work. Because nobody has any reason to believe anything when it comes to what will work and what comes to the risk that institutions will put their kids through in order to make a buck. The Big Ten has at least given these kids something to look at and potentially just say, I'm good on. We'll see. Coming up, talking to a college football player about what's going on. Man, we're going to hear from a voice that you're going to hear a lot of on ESPN Radio. It's The Intersection. Clint Yates, L. Duncan, talking to you on a Thursday. You're listening to The Intersection on ESPN Radio. Clinton Yates and L. Duncan. All guests on the program appear via the Shell Penzo performance line. And joining us right now... It's my buddy Keyshawn Johnson. You know him from his previous days at ESPN LA. Now he's on the morning show with Jay Will. And who else is on this program, Key? Tell me who the other non-stars are, brother, because I don't even really know. No, man. We got we got some stars. We got Jay Will. We got Zubin Mehete. Jay Will, obviously, basketball player that played at Duke. Uh, famously, stupidity, as I like to call it with him, <laughs> is running into a tree and is on his motorcycle after being selected by the – Chicago Bulls, number two overall. Good thing he's still with us, though. He got out of it, luckily, and he continued his career uh, as a broadcaster. And so, as I told him the other day, you didn't make it doing that, but you made it doing this. So, as long as you don't get on a motorcycle again, you'll be all right. That's what's up. And Zubin is a guy who you guys have seen on SportsCenter quite a bit, so we're looking forward to that morning show launching. Let's get right into it. All right, Key, now you're coming to this in terms of college football from a position that – 
I think admittedly you would know is very different from a lot of people. You were a big time star, big time recruit, big time player who went big time in the pros. Who these guys are for the Pac-12 and these you know young men and women who are putting themselves together to speak up against what's going on. They are not the U's of the world, but you played in the Pac-10. When you first saw this, what did you think just in terms of generally about what their goals were and what their cause is and how they communicated it? Well, the first thing I said was good for them. Uh, yeah, they, they may have not been me on the field or may not have the popularity or the notoriety or even the athletic ability, but what they sure have is the know-how. And they've known, they know how to put this thing together to get pushback. And when I was playing college ball, that wasn't the case. We didn't form a coalition on things that we knew wasn't right. We talked about it. We complained about it, but we did nothing about it. And when you look at this young group of individuals now that are putting their careers on the line and letting everybody know, you know, they're not going to accept being treated a certain type of way, Clinton, that is unfair that they're not being paid a certain way. It's unfair that the injustice in the world is going on, especially in college sports. All of the sort of things that they're fighting for is going to wake the people up with college sports. Um, it's just not about being black or brown. It's about everybody in this particular situation. And I think that that is the important part that can't get lost in the message that they're sending. Because I've seen people just talk about, oh, now people just want to do this because of the black movement. And, oh, they want to do this because of Black Lives Matters. And No, no, it ain't just black people. It's everybody. Because the NC2A and college sports, the conferences are wrong. They're wrong on how they handle and they treat athletes. And now... The athletes are empowering themselves, and by empowering yourself, that that now allows you to kind of take control of a situation. And I'm so glad that they have done that. Yeah. Keyshawn Johnson joins us here on the Intersection ESPN Radio, the Shell Penzoil Performance Line. The reason I mentioned that specifically for you, Key, is because I wonder – you're an outspoken guy. You're a brother that's spoken up for yourself, obviously, in a lot of different realms. Do you think if this kind of thing had happened with a guy of your stature, not just as a black person and not just, frankly, as a USC player, but as a football player in terms of revenue sports, do you think this is something that you could have added on to, never mind been the face of, in a situation like this? I absolutely would have embraced it, been a part of it. Um, again, like I said, there wasn't a whole lot of things like this going on on campus for me. Um, because it just, you know, it just wasn't. That was a time in the era where it wasn't. But now it is, and I wish it would have been with me because I would have loved to be a part of, you know, putting my foot down uh, with college. I can't stand the NC2A. I didn't like the NC2A when I played because I was woke. I wasn't asleep back then. And so when I look at the situation, the way that they treat these players and how they treat things and the way the transfer rules are and just all the different stuff, and the little nuances, the way they go about doing things is just not cool. And so I'm glad to see that they're getting it, and they're getting it the way they're supposed to. And I hope at the end all the players on every level get what they're supposed to get in every single sport that they get what they're supposed to get from these colleges. They make money. They got billions of dollars in TV revenue. It's time to part ways with some of that. That's absolutely true. And one of the things that strikes me about this specifically from a Pac-12 standpoint is that we heard what the brothers from the SEC said, and you're exactly right. These kids are smart. They know right from wrong, and they understand how to communicate their message. Here's what I think, Keith. 
I think that the Pac-12, if nothing else, forget about return to glory and all this other stuff on the football field. I think that's going to be a place where it's not no longer going to be just, oh, some old white guy can have a reclamation project for a school that people forgot had football. It's going to be a legitimately progressive place where coaches who relate to teams differently than coaches ever have before in college football come to be a part of programs and lead them. Am I crazy in this? Because I know that can't happen in the SEC and the Big 12 the same way. Do you think it can happen in the Pac-12 because of the markets and the people that are there? No, I think it, I think it could happen across the, the, the entire spectrum. I don't think it's just going to be the Pac-12. I think it, it eventually trickled down to all conferences. Remember, for many years, blacks were not even allowed to play. Browns weren't even allowed to play in the SEC. Eventually, it changed. And, right. and things will change. I mean, it, it just takes time. Everything in this world that we live in is microwave instantly. Put it in, push the start button, and it's good, opposed to waiting. And I think sometimes when you wait, not necessarily wait, but when you have patience and you give it time, that's when the best things come. And I think that that will happen across college sports as a whole. Keyshawn Johnson joins us here on The Intersection. Clinton Yates, L. Duncan, ESPN Radio. A couple more things on this. From a USC standpoint, have any of the student athletes there not necessarily consulted you, but stood out to you in terms of what they were doing from your alma mater to be a part of this cause? No, they, they, no, no, they haven't. I haven't spoke to anybody there. Um, you know, I'm a hard person to get, along, get, get a hold of these days. You know, I'm like the president of the United States. And Barack Obama, man, you can't get a hold of me, you know, unless unless it's super important. No, but um, I just haven't had a chance to. I've been kind of tied up in my own thing, moving across the country and trying to get the ESPN morning show deal off the ground on August 17th and working on the NFL live piece on August 17th. So I got a lot of irons in the fire. I really haven't had a chance to dial in with the young men. I totally understand that. The reason I asked, though, Key, is because I know how important, particularly at a place like SC, that the alumni connection and the community connection is important in how athletes express themselves and how they grow as people. And so I'm wondering what you think now more largely about how the alumni community from the Pac-12 plays into helping some of these young men and women get to their causes and get to their goals. Well, I think for the most part, you'll be able, you'll see a number of, high-profile former Pac-12 alums, you know, chime in because that's the way it's always been. No matter what the situation is, the support system has always been there for them. All they have to do is reach out, and it'll be taken care of. Hmm. Okay. The last thing I'll ask you is this. I know that you've talked a lot of times about how what your motivation was in college was to get to the, get to the money. Get to the pros, get your reps in, make sure everybody can see you so you can make cash. However, I do want to know this. If you had one system that you could implement as a way to make things more fair from a money standpoint for student athletes, not just in revenue sports, but just in general, what would it be? What's the Keyshawn Johnson system for properly enumerating athletes who give their bodies up for free in front of the NCAA? Well, I would, I would, would first of all, I would probably, ha- I mean, I would see what the numbers are. Then after we see what the numbers are, I will put it into an escrow account, X amount of money per per year that you're there, per semester that you're there, uh, almost like an annuity. Okay. When you graduate, uh, you know, five years after graduation, that those funds are released to you. So let's say, for instance, uh, the, the, the football program is generating $80 million dollars. 
that $80 million. And I'm just talking about just a football program in particular or whatever. Right. It could be any program, but that number is, is, you know, a percentage is given to that particular sport uh, for that particular time. So if the kid is on campus for six semesters, each semester he's given, for wild number's sake, $20,000. That $20,000 okay. is invested. That $20,000 is has an interest and in government, some sort of government rate or some sort um, guaranteed. And five years after they remove from college, that fund, those funds are released to them. So therefore, they now have something to basically start their life with. And the reason I say five years is because typically, you know, you graduate, you try to get a job, you get a job here, there, may not be making a lot of money, maybe making some money. Now, all of a sudden, you have an opportunity to know that you got a nest egg right there to give you a jump start. Uh, I don't think that they should have the money given to them while they're in school. I would just put it in an escrow account, let it grow. You know, you make you may be there five semesters and pick up 150000 By the time that 150000 grows, it grows to 225000 You got it now. You know, you, you the NFL didn't work out. The NBA didn't work out. Water polo didn't work out. Whatever sport it was didn't work out. And now all of a sudden you look up five years later, you got $225,000 sitting there for you to draw on, to to add to whatever little bit of money you did make in the workforce. You know, now you can buy your first condo, you can buy your first this, you know, maybe you're invested in a business that you learned about five years later, I mean, five years earlier. So it's all sorts of ways that I think you can, put something together with an athlete to be okay. It's not, I'm not even talking about crazy money. Think about it. That's not right. crazy money. And, and no. when you talk about all the sports, and I think all sports, if you're on full scholarship, first semester, you should get X amount of money. What that X right. amount is, I don't know. Okay. He's Keyshawn Johnson. He's lived a football life. You can catch him with Jason Williams, Zubin Mahenti on ESPN Radio's morning show on August 17th. And, of course, on NFL Live, enjoy New York, Key. Appreciate the time, fam. Uh-oh, the doggies barking. Get the dogs out of control, playboy. You, you know what's so crazy, though? Clint, is, is as many dogs as we got in L.A., it's crazy because I see 50 dogs a day walking three <laughs> blocks. In L.A., I see 10 dogs, and we got – so many more dogs probably, but we got these backyards and stuff, and so it's easy living in these apartment buildings with a, 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 a tree trunk with grass around is a little bit different. Other other upcoming show on ESPN Plus, Keyshawn Walking Dogs. Looking forward to it, Playboy. <laughs> Alright, we'll talk. Speaking of being, say there, well, I was going to say, speaking of being, I, was I in the doghouse? Because I didn't get a chance to ask a single question on that 12-minute interview, and I'm just wondering what I did. That was myself catching up with Keyshawn Johnson of Keyshawn J and Zubin. <laughs> of course, Key is an L.A. legend, and I've gotten to know him over the past couple years, Just not just as a personality, but as a friend. So I'm happy for him, and uh, he's like in New York. So anyway, that was a fun one. Coming up, does what's happening in Major League Baseball give you any confidence that the NFL will effectively handle COVID-19? It's The Intersection on ESPN Radio.
R.I.P. Malik B. You're listening to The Intersection on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app and Sirius XM Channel 80. If you want to tweet us, hit us up. I'm Clinton Yates, at Clinton Yates. She's L. Duncan, at L. Duncan ESPN. You can give us a phone call at 1-888-SAY-ESPN, 1-888-729-3776. We've been talking about a lot of different things today, but obviously COVID-19 is still very much top of mind. Here's the question. Does what's happening in Major League Baseball give you any confidence that the NFL will effectively handle the coronavirus? For those of you who don't know, a total of 66 players have opted out of the 2020 season because of the pandemic, y'all. That's almost half of those dudes. They're linemen. 20 offensive linemen and 11 on defense have opted out before today's 4 p.m. Eastern deadline. It's a real situation because I've told this story before. I was in a spring training ballpark when the Major League Baseball season got canceled. They continued to play that game that day in that yard, nine innings. Ever since then, I didn't trust Major League Baseball to do anything right on the health front. Since then, they've started the season. They've had a couple rather large hiccups, L, in terms of various teams getting caught up in terms of what they were doing and potentially contracting the virus and spreading it to other places. It has not gone well in a non-bubble situation, and that's what we've learned. However, the NFL still has a little time. They're not on the same sort of calculus that college football is. L, what is your confidence meter like in terms of how the NFL is going to handle this considering what we've seen on the diamond? Super low. I mean, come on, you guys. Like, this is the same. We are dealing with essentially the same situation, except for the fact that it's exacerbated for NFL because it's an actual contact sport. I mean, the only reason MLB hasn't been canceled and the only reason this hasn't been a total cluster, despite the fact you've got 13 Cardinals players and staff that had it after 20 Marlins players and staff had it, is because the transmission rate is incredibly low, it appears, right? Like, they didn't give it to the teams as they were seeing these ridiculous outbreaks happen. That is impossible. In the NFL, you start doing contract tracing. What happens if Tom Brady's position coach, his quarterback coach, right? What happens if Byron Leftwich gets COVID-19? Then does Tom Brady then have to sit out of a game? And if he has to sit out, he's obviously been with his offensive line. Do they all have to sit out of a game in quarantine? I mean, if you cannot do a bubble environment, which to this point is the only thing we've seen that has been effective. I just don't understand how it is tangible to think that this is going to work. And I think similarly, Clinton, to MLB, who spent so much time worrying about you know the contract details of all of this and less yep. time really in terms of laying out what would happen when undoubtedly an outbreak like this does happen – football's essentially done the same thing. I mean, we had dudes reporting for camp and three days prior didn't really even know what any of the protocols or guidelines were going to be. They still don't really know how often they're going to be tested or if that's going to be enough. I mean, it just feels like hopeful optimism is leading the charge here, and that's just not a formula or a blueprint for success in my mind. We're looking at different mitigation methods. One of them is to potentially force players to wear face shields as if that's going to do something. Let's hear what Aaron Donald, Rams defensive tackle, had to say on that matter. No, I ain't, I ain't tried. I, 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 honestly, I probably won't even put that on. I need, I need air when I'm, when I'm out there running around and breathing with them long drives and stuff. So um, I feel like we, we out there, we playing up close. I don't, there's nothing you can really do to, you know, if a guy got it and I tackle a guy, then I probably got it because he's going to be sweating and spitting and slobbering all in my face. So. Um, uh, hopefully you guys are just doing what they need to do. And I there's not the shield they say it worked with. I don't, I don't, I don't really think it would. I mean, that's the thing. Football isn't just a contact sport, L. It's intimate. 
These guys are touching all over each other. Hockey's a contact sport, too. But dudes are gliding by in a different kind of way. I understand that there's still a lot of contact, but not all contact sports are created equal. And the general just sort of mechanics of the game, well beyond the field, make this very difficult. And here's my thing, too, L. If you're going to do anything, just take a lesson from what's worked, like you said. Bubbles work, as far as we know. You might as well give it a rip. Have a bubble per division. Give that a shot. Because at this point, walking into a season with no plan to do anything but just kind of hope that folks are going to self-quarantine and folks are going to do what they're supposed to do from a protocol standpoint is stupid and risky. And I don't understand why you would put yourself at risk like that, L, if you didn't have to. Well, exactly. And it's not only just hoping that the players themselves do the right thing. It's hoping that every single person that comes into their orbit does the right thing as well. I just, I think that, you know, and you mentioned, and I think it's significant, you mentioned how many offensive linemen, defensive linemen have opted out. They're the types that are most at risk. We always look at Mm -hmm. it in terms of, well, how old are they? Like, this is a disease that affects old people or people with underlying conditions. Well, it also affects people who tend to be on the bigger side or have breathing issues, and that tends to be your linemen. So no wonder they are feeling maligned and feeling like they're in a situation where they don't have enough understanding of how this affects them and how they're going to be protected from it and they're choosing just not to play and I I, frankly I can't blame it I love football as much as the next person I just don't understand how this is going to work if we one week into MLB saw a mass outbreak I don't either and that's what's so scary about this I really hope that NFL owners after the last three seasons in that league have enough guts to just say we got it wrong, and we need to do it differently. It's as simple as that, you know? Figure it out. Because right now, what works is a bubble, not what the NFL's plan is. It's The Intersection on ESPN Radio. Clinton Yates, L. Duncan. Coming up, well, changing of the guard in college football.